much. Thank you everybody for coming. I really appreciate it. It's a special pleasure to welcome my friend Dovi Hartman, who's uh, here to help with his father, Ari. Thank you, Ari, for taking care of the sushi and for bringing Dovi. Welcome to the Baruch, who's here again. And of course, Shlomo and everybody else, thank you very much for coming. Very much appreciated. And of course, thank you anybody also who's listening on the podcast. Bezer Hashem, Ziyad Deshmai, up to Parshas. Kisavai. Parsha starts off with the mitzvah of Bikurim. In Eretz Yisrael, so after Kalal Yisrael settled in the land, there's a mitzvah that every single year a farmer brings the first of his crops, the crops that are from the Shiva Saminim, to the Beis Hamikdash. The first and the best. He brings it to the Kayan. And it's a ceremony that's supposed to be done every single year. The Pasuk tells us that when the, when the person comes, when the farmer comes to the Beis HaMikdash, so he reads a whole, a whole selection of psukim that he declares. He hands the, the basket over to the Kayan, the basket with the fruits and the grains. The Kayan puts it in front of the Mizbeach. And then, You, the farmer, should speak up. In the presence of the Rabbi Nishalayla, Marami, Oyved Avi, Vayered Mitzrayma, the story of the history of Klal Yisrael from the times of Yankee Avinu and Lovan Harami, continuing on with Klal Yisrael going to Mitzrayim, being enslaved there, and how Klal Yisrael dove into the Rabbi Nishalayla to take them out, and the Rabbi Nishalayla took them out and he brought them back to Eretz Yisrael. And now, finally, the puzzle concludes, Now, after all this is done, here I am bringing my first fruit to the Rebbeinu Shalelam. Okay? And that is the ceremony of Bikurim. Of course, we know these psukim because this is the foundation for the Haggadah Shal Pesach. The, the uh, Haggadah Shal Pesach, uh, almost from the beginning, darshans these psukim of Arami Avidavi. The love of Arami came. To Eretz Yisrael, uh, Love and Arami wanted to wipe out Klal Yisrael, and, and on and on and on. The God says, Love and Arami wanted to wipe Klal Yisrael out, even worse than Parai, who only was Geyser on the Zcharim, and on and on. The, the Yagoda Darshans goes through every single uh, word in these Psukim. And these are Psukim that we're all familiar with. However, at the beginning, the Torah tells us before he actually says, goes through this list of the history of Klal Yisrael, so the farmer bring the Bikurim, he says something else. Says the Pasuk, You come with the Bikurim to the Koyen, you say to him, Says the Koyen, says the man to the Koyen, I declared in front of the Rabbi Nishalayim that I came to the land that he promised our forefathers to give us. So, two questions. First of all, well, what's this all about? Obviously, if you're there, then you're, you came to the land. Otherwise, you wouldn't be bringing the fruit. And what is this lushan of higadati? Like, I told you, I told the Rabbi Nishalayim already that I came to the land. No, you didn't. You're saying it now. He got it as a lashon avar, like I said it already. So what's going on here? Why does the, uh, the person bring the bikurim have to say these words? What exactly is the Torah trying to tell us here? So before we answer that, 
Let's look on to another point later in the Parsha. Pasuk discusses the Maimud that's going to happen after Kal Yisrael enters Eretz Yisrael, the entire nation. So there's going to be a Maimud of the Bris, of the Klolis and the Brachas. Half of the Shvatim are going to stand on one mountain, on Har Grizim. <coughs> the other half are going to stand on another mountain, Har Eval. There are two big mountains facing each other. In the middle between them are going to stand the Kohanim and the Levim. And they're going to call out Brachas and Klolis. They're going to turn to Har Grizim and say the Brachas. And they're going to turn to Har Eval and say the Klolis. And the people on each mountain answer Amen. To their respective blessing or klala, whatever it is. What are these brachas? What are these klalas? So the Torah talks about it. Person makes a getchke, makes an avayda zara, v'samba seser, and he like posts it in his house in a secret place, in hiding. That person is cursed. And yeah, people say amen. And as Rashi points out, they also say the opposite. Baruch, the person who doesn't do this, Baruch, he's going to be blessed. And that continues. Arur makla by someone who degrades his parents. Amen. He's, he's cursed, but he answers Amen. And the same thing, Baruch, someone who doesn't. Arur masik somebody who moves the uh, boundaries of his property. Like it's, it's late at night, you have a field. And what you do is you go into the, where, you, where the field is uh, separated between you and your neighbor and you move the border. You move the fence up so you get a bigger field. You do it at night. Nobody sees. Nobody knows. It says the Torah, the Rebbein Shalom doesn't forget. He notices. And you get a curse. If you don't do it, you get a bracha. And the puzzle goes on. Isur uh, Mavarayas. And... You know, a blind man is walking in the street and, you know, he asks you for directions or if you could guide him in the way that he has to go and you send him in the wrong direction for whatever reason. Again, a klala for doing it, a bracha for not doing it. So, right, similar to right, exactly, Chayim. So, we have to understand What's uh, what exactly is happening here that the Torah is focusing on these specific inyanim? These are the things that you do. You're going to get a bracha. These are the things that you, that you do, or, or excuse me, these are the things that you do. You'll get a klala, and if you don't do it, you'll get a bracha. What's the avana here? So I heard this. Remember, Foreman, David Foreman. We we quote a few times in the uh, the Shia here, Aleph Beta. That's his website, and he, where he tries to delve into the pshat of the psukim, and he comes out with really beautiful things, based really literally on the words of the Torah. And he says like this, you know, you think about it, there's two types of people who live in the world. You have someone who lives in the world, and he says, you know, it's Hashem's world. He's in charge. He's running it as he understands and as he knows that's best for every single person, myself included. Everything I have... It's from him. Whether it's good, whether it's Khalil, it's bad. Everybody in Shalim runs the world. He's in charge. And all the good that I have, I appreciate it and I'm thankful <coughs> for it. And I'm grateful for it. That's one view, and that's you know, that's that's the proper view, obviously. That every single person should have. And then a person can have the totally opposite view. It's my world. What's in it for me? He comes into the world, 
Me, 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 that's all he thinks about. I want to get whatever I can from this world. I want to do whatever I want from this world. And these are two different, two different ways of thought. Uh, Chaim was speaking before about the new uh, Decree. education decrees. And, and the truth is, this is not really like a, a local issue. This is really part of a bigger, broader uh, scheme that's happening really across the country. This is, it's an attack on the civil liberties of anybody who's not a radical, who's not a radical liberal. They're attacking us from all angles. So whether it's political or in this particular case it's religion, it, but it really all boils down to the same idea, that there's two schools of thought. And the liberal school of thought is, this is my world, I'm going to do whatever the heck I want. Nobody's going to stop me. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And in fact, if I see you doing something that I don't like, I'm going to stop you. That's how liberals view the world. The Torah says, no, that's not how a person's supposed to view the world. It's the Rebbeinah Shalom's world. He puts you in here and he gives you what you need and he doesn't give you what you don't need. And our avoda is to try to appreciate everything that he gives us. Say, thank you, Rebbeinah Shalom. And if it's not meant for us, I'm okay with that. Says the Torah, a person goes into Eretz Yisrael and he has this ability, to, the, the Bechira, to choose between these two ways of thought. What's he going to do? What's he going to do? Avodah Zarah, what we know in those days, was a big Yitzhahara. Now a person's embarrassed to do in public Avodah Zarah, he knows he's going to get punished for it, but in the, in, the, in the quiet of his home where nobody can see, is he going to go ahead and do Avodah Zarah? He's going to say, you know, this is, this is between myself and I, and if I decide that I want to do Avodah Zarah, you're not going to stop me. Or are you going to hold back and you're going to say no to the Yitzhahara? No, no, Hashem runs the world. He doesn't want you to have this Avodah Zarah B'Seyser. Says the Pasuk, depending on what you decide, it's a bracha or a klala. And the same thing regarding, let's say, your parents, talking to your parents, you know, it's a private conversation, it's a private way of doing nobody knows, nobody knows, what are you going to do? A person can look at his parents and say, you know, they're here for one reason, that is to give me whatever I want. Unfortunately, there are people who live like that, you know, I mean, they milk their parents, and you read stories of, of, uh, of altercations that happened between parents and children, because the children were demanding... Stuff that the parents weren't able to give them. <coughs> you don't give it to me. I'm going to beat you up. I'm going to kill you. What not? Well, Hashem, not so much in our community, but it's happening in the outside world. It says the Pesach, or makla of You know, even in the shadow of your, in the quiet of your own home, if you're not going to approach your parents with a proper attitude, realizing that they're the ones who brought you into the world, and you have a kara satayv, and again, it's Hashem's world, He's telling you to honor your parents, you get a klola or a bracha. And the same thing with the rest of the things that we mentioned. Masik Again, a person can look at the field that he has and say, the Rebbein gave me this amount. My border ends here. The Rebbein says, this is, what, this is what I'm supposed to have. Everything else is meant for my neighbor. And that's fine. Baruch Hashem, thank you Hashem for what you gave me. Or you can say, no, 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 I want more. Because I want more. Why? Why do you want more? I just want it. Because I want more. And immediately you go in the middle of the night and you move the fences up. So that really is the difference between these two type of people and the Torah is telling us, giving us exact guidance of how we're supposed to view things. Remember, be on the case of the Baruch. Remember that the Rebbeinu Shalaylam is in charge. He runs the world and he has a mission for you. He has a tafkit for you. And he gives you what you need. Appreciate it and be grateful for it. And don't look to go above and beyond what you were meant to have. With that in mind, so as a by foreman, we can go back to the beginning of the Parsha talking about the mitzvah of Bikurim. We asked, the Pesach says, 
You have to make this declaration before you go and you thank the Rebbeinu Shalom for giving us the land. You make the declaration, I'm here, I arrived. What's that all about? <coughs> because if we look at the history of Klai Yisrael, the history starting from the other Sekedoshim, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, so we see, you know, they didn't have it easy. Avram was promised by the Rebbeinu Shalom that Eretz Yisrael is going to be his and it's going to go to his children. And of course, in his lifetime, he didn't see it at all. In fact, he, he was forced to move from place to place because of the different Isyanis and different difficulties that he encountered. Yitzchak Avinu, the same thing. Also, he had difficulties and he had an ace of, he didn't have an easy life. He wasn't able to merit to see Klali in his glory. And Yaakov Avinu also, also, he was given the promise. Instead, what happens? He ends up in Mitzrayim. But they, they lived with it. They lived with it. Now, a person might wonder, one second, where's the Avtacha that the Rebbein Shalom promised? And that Avtacha didn't happen, as we know, for many years. Klali Yisrael was in Mitzrayim for many years. They went to Midbar for many years. Finally, they were able to go into Eretz Yisrael. Then, after Klali Yisrael came into Eretz Yisrael, they settled in the land, they defeated their enemies. Now, they're able to enjoy the bracha that the Rebbein Shalom gave them. This is going to be your land. You're going to be here. You're going to serve me. You're going to live here. It's going to be a beautiful life, which it was back in those days. So when the man comes to the base of Migdash with his Bikurim, before he even goes to the Psukim, he says, Now I understand. You know, I know you promised it to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. They weren't Zaycha to see it. But I'm Zaycha to see it. I'm Zaycha to have it. And to enjoy it. And now I'm acknowledging Rebbeinah Shalaylam that this is, this is your world. You finally fulfilled your promise. And now we can understand. We look back, you know, the promise that you gave way back is being fulfilled with me. He got it. Yes, Rebbeinah Shalaylam, we arrived, we made it. And this is the attitude of Yid. Of course, we're in Golis. We no longer have that opportunity to bring Bikurim. But the point, of course, is the same. That the Yid lives his life with the understanding that the Rebbeinu Shalom gives him what he needs, he takes care of him. Sometimes we don't understand it, sometimes we don't see it, but we believe it nonetheless. And everything that we have, all the brachas that we have, we have to appreciate and thank the Rebbeinu Shalom for it. And this ties in, one more point, to another difficult parsha that we have here in the parsha. Of course, that's the Teichacha. This is the second Teichacha that we find in the Torah. We have parshas B'chukaisai. Parshas Kisavai, so this week Shabbos, even though Shisha usually, I guess it goes to the Rav over here, but not this week, because this week Shishi is the Teichacha, so the Balkair is going to get it. Balkair reads it, and a lot of, lot of bad things are going to happen to Klai Yisrael, you know, if they go on that path, the path that we said earlier, the path of the Oru, you know, not, not following the Torah, not following the rest of the Rebbeinah Shalom, and as things uh, kind of uh, unravel from there, and Klai Yisrael goes down and down and down, the Rebbein Shalom also, he starts punishing Klai Yisrael more and more and more. And, you know, the Psukim are very graphic about what's going to happen, the hunger that's going to happen, the famine that's going to happen, the Mohammeds that are going to happen, the difficult things that are going to happen. But in the middle, smack in the middle, a very famous Pesach. And it's in between. You know why all of this is happening? All the result, all of this, all these these horrible things. It's happening because you didn't serve the Rebbeinu Shalom with Simcha. You didn't serve him with Simcha, you didn't serve him with joy. 
from all the good that he gave you. What's going on? What is what's the Torah trying to tell us? Okay, Simcha is an important thing, especially Yibreslav, but Simcha, we know it's uh, definitely a big part of Yiddishkeit, but is it so important that a person is going to marry the Torah? No, but what's happening here is the Torah is telling us, you know why all this happens? You know why you unraveled? And you reach the level the Rebbeinah Shalom is literally throwing the book at you with all these kolos, it's because you forgot how you're supposed to live. You're supposed to live the life of Simcha and appreciating everything that the Rebbeinah Shalom gave him and realizing that the Rebbeinah Shalom runs the world. He gave you what you need. You have whatever you need. Be thankful, be happy. And if Khalilo, a person can't do that, Kal Yisrael can't do it, then things start to unravel. If you're unhappy and you're looking at what you don't have and you're looking at what's not meant to be yours and you say, I want that, whether it's Inyanim, of Mominus, like we said, whether it's in Yanam of Arias, or Benadam Lamakam. The point is, a person says, This is not, I want more than what I have. That is the beginning, the beginning of the destruction, the beginning of the Nefila. And that's what the Rabbi Shalom is telling us over here. So, Mela, we see here in the Parsha, really, this concept of how a Yid is supposed to live his life with a feeling of simcha, of happiness for everything that he has, and understanding that the Rabbi Shalom runs the world. And Yankel Galinsky tells over a story, we mentioned this here once. Uh, after the Russians occupied Lita, Lithuania, this is 1941, before the Nazis came, so right away they um, they uh, uh, they put a, a, a like a reign of terror, communist terror across the entire Jewish community, and they, they weren't killing people, but anybody who was caught learning or anything that they viewed as suspicious, they shipped him straight off to Siberia. Begalinsky himself eventually ended up there as well. But this is a little bit before he was shipped off to Siberia. Uh, everybody had to feel like have an official residence, so he ended up finding a place. They closed down the yeshivas, of course. He stayed with the, with the sheikhet in the town that he was in, the sheikhet in the moel. Same person. Anyway, one day, there's a knock at the door. But at least he goes to open the door. A knock at the door is always, uh, you know, if you're, if you're in, uh, occupied under the Soviet regime, a knock at the door is always a terrible thing, a very fearful event. It was a Russian officer. And he's asking for the owner of the house, the mail. So Rabbi Galinsky says, no, nah, he's not home. And the man speaks to me in Yiddish, he says, like, Haknishkinshainik, I know he's here. Okay, realizing that the officer was a Yid, he let him in. The officer speaks to the mail, he says, my wife gave birth to a son. No, I had no intention of giving him a bris, but my wife's late mother came to her in a dream. She said, you have to give your son a bris and name him after your father. So we decided we're going to give him a bris. Of course, a bris in, in Soviet Russia has to be done clandestinely. It can't be done in open, the open. So the officer says, how are you going to do it? Tomorrow, which uh, was the day of the bris, you'll go to my house. He set up a whole system. He set up a whole, uh, a whole system. Someone's going to leave the house at 9 o'clock with a basket. Then you'll know it's safe to go in. The maid is going to be there. You can trust her. Do the bris, and he says to Rabbi Galinsky, who was a bochra at the time, he says, you, you're going to be the sandak. You're going to hold the baby. The officer was too scared to be there by his own son's bris. And the next day, they walk near the house. The wife comes out with the basket. They go inside. The maid is there. They do the bris. And Rabbi Galinsky says that was the first time in his life that he was a sandak. Okay. After the bris, so the maid prepares for him a, be- a delicious meal, <laughs> which he ate. He was starving. There was very little food in that, uh, in that period. But anyway, to make a long story short, they gave the baby the name and everything is fine. A few days later, he's walking in the street and he bumps into that officer. So he says to him, well, let me ask you something under my breath, you know, so nobody should hear. You know, you're a secular Jew, you know, uh, an agent with the, uh, with the Russian military, not exactly the most religious person 
why did he decide to make the bris? You know, with the, you know, you're endangering your life and your family's life. So he says, you know, he realizes that, you know, what the situation that they're in now is not going to last forever. And the day's going to come. The day's going to come that a Jew will be able to walk around as a proud Jew. He says, I want my son, when that day comes, to be able to say, yes, I'm a proud Jew, that I have a bris. And it says Rabbi Galinsky, you know, that is the outlook of a Yid, you know, understanding that the Rabbi Shalom runs the world, even though this is not someone who was religious, but at least he had the understanding. The view of a Yid is, you know, ideally, a Yid is supposed to be a proud Yid, and that's how he wants to live his life, or at least, at the minimum, give that ability to his son. And that's why he gave his son a bris. But al him. we see this Nakuda, and this is important now during this period of the year. You know, we look back at our year, Hashem, you know, everybody that's here means that they, Hashem, the Ebishter last year, Signed us in the book of life. You know, he gave us a year of of, uh, of health, hopefully. He gave us a year of Parnasa, hopefully. A year of Nachas, hopefully. Everybody has, you know, their own situations and their own struggles, whatever it is. But the bottom line is, we're all here. And not everybody is here. You know, there are people who didn't make it. People who didn't make it. And if we're here, that means we have to thank the Rebbeinah Shalom. Thank you, Hashem, that you gave us another year. Another year of life. And the more we strengthen ourselves with this emuna and bitochen and understanding and, and appreciation to the Rebbeinah Shalom, then automatically our connection to the Rebbeinah Shalom and our resolve to follow the Torah, the mitzvahs, is going to become strengthened because we have a Kor Satoiv. And a Kor Satoiv is the foundation. The foundation for everything. And that's like the Pesach tells us. If you don't appreciate what you have and you want more and more, you don't have Simcha. And that's the, the, the beginning of the destruction. If you have, though, everything that you want, or at least you look at things and say, Rebbeinah Shalayim, you gave me what I need, you're going to have Simcha. And if you have Simcha, you can serve the Rebbeinah Shalayim as it's meant to be. And the Rebbeinah Shalayim, he's going to shower us with more and more bracha. And that's certainly a gewaldi good thing to, to work on during this time of year. You know, this um, last week, Friday, so the great Askin Yanki Meyer was nifter. Yanki Meyer was probably what we could say the Godel Adar and Chesed at least here in America. Of course, his biggest organization was Masaskim, which he created to help out Avelim. But in addition, you know, he was really all over the place, uh, very involved. He was a Hatzalah, he was a chaplain. And uh, he said over an interesting story, you know, which gave a perspective uh, for life. He was a Bacher, learning in Yeshiva, and he came home from Yeshiva one day, and he was told that uh, uh, somebody close to the family was Nifter. It must have been a sudden thing. So he said, okay, you know what, let me, let me go over there to, to see if I can help. You know, already then, he already had that drive for, for Chesed. So he runs over there, it was a few blocks away, and the family where the mace was, they were living on the sixth floor. So he runs up six flights of stairs. And he renters the apartment with a huff and a puff. Like, you know, what can I do to help? And it happens to me because it was a close family member or a friend. His father was there also, Yanki Meyer's father. His father was a very close friend of the a survivor of the Holocaust. And his father sees Yanki enter like that. He says to him, he says to him these words. And Yanki Meyer said, you know, this gave him a perspective for the future. You don't enter the Oval's house with a huff and a puff. Like, hey, I'm here. I'm here. What can I do to help? No, no, that's not how you do it. Oval's house is, is, a, is a place of pain. It's a place of availus. Enter with sincerity, with humility, and with, you know, understanding of, of what's happening here. And that's how you can help another Yid. And Yanki Meyer said that, that really shaped his, uh, his view on future Askanas. And he said, you know, all the years that he worked in Misaskim, and he saw the worst cases up front. Mm-hmm. Many times he was the one, unfortunately, who would have the, the uh, he had the job to go inform people 
Khalil, when there was a tragedy in their family, like the case of the Sassoon family, he was the one who went and told the father on Shabbos what happened, because the father wasn't there. He said he never, ever got used to it. And he davened. He davened to Rebbein please, make sure I don't get used to this. It's not something that I want to get used to. I want to still feel a, have a connected heart. At any time I'm faced with a tragedy, it should still hurt me. It should still hurt me. And that's how he lived his life. A life of appreciation of what life means, a life of, of understanding that I'm here in the world for a reason. The Rebbein put me here for a reason. And in his particular case, he realized that his talents that he was given were meant to be devoted to other people. And that's what he did. You know, this is a man who, who did not sleep. He did not sleep. In fact, a few years ago, he coordinated the Levaya of the Sklana Rebbe, one of the biggest Levayas that, that took place here. Tens of thousands of people. And he coordinated, you know, he ran the whole thing. And that same night, his, his daughter got married. So somebody took a picture of him at the hall. This is Mamish literally, like, right before the wedding, right before people started coming in. He's laying on two chairs and he's sleeping. What happened? He hadn't slept the whole night before. He hadn't slept the whole day. So now he has a few minutes before the Kabbalah is upon him. The father of the bride is able to hop a little, a little slip, a little dremel. So, you know, this is, this is who we're talking about. A man who literally lived for others. And, you know, obviously, this is not for everybody. You know, we have Hashem Askanim here in the show. We have Ari of Chaim and, you know, everybody else. Shlomo is a big askan across the street. And, you know, everybody does their own thing, whatever they're capable of doing. But the understanding is that this is the Rabbi Nishalayim's world, and we're supposed to understand and appreciate everything that we have. And at the same time, tell Rabbi Nishalayim, you know, I'm here to serve you, and if you give me talents, you give me kaychas, I want to use them uh, to help others. In my own little way, my own little way, and that's definitely something that we could take away from him, and something that we could take away from the Parsha, and something we can all gain chizuk from, and I just want to conclude the very moving story. Sunday this year, Sunday was September 11th. 21 years since the September 11th attacks. Most of us remember it well. Shmuley wasn't yet born. But there's a fellow, his name is Ari Schoenbrun. Ari Schoenbrun worked at Cantor Fitzgerald. Cantor Fitzgerald, of course, was, I think, in the North Tower, uh, the first tower to be attacked on the 101st floor. It's a, a firm that employed over 900 people, over 600 who were already in the offices when the first plane attacked, and of course not a single person from that 600 survived. Ari Schoenberg is telling his story, how he survived 9-11. 21 years later, he's telling his story. Uh, he was about to leave, and as he did every single morning, he would leave before 7 o'clock so he could be at the office at 8 o'clock. He was a broker or a trader, a very, very high-pressure job, and it was a very high-pressured environment. Uh, uh, you know, as, as it is, as, as uh, you know, as Wall Street is, um, you know, everybody's out there to make money, and a lot of it, and there's no, there's no messing around. And his wife calls down to him, did you fill out our son's book order? Uh, in some schools they give what's called the Scholastic Book Order. Scholastic is a, it's a company that, that sells books for kids in schools at reduced prices. So every year, at the beginning of the year, the school gives out a book form, you know, where you could, uh, you know, like 30 books that are appropriate for your grade, for your age. And the child could choose which books he wants to order. It's given, you know, it's a very good price. And then the parent gives a check for that amount. Okay, he said, no, I didn't fill it out yet. This is on a Tuesday morning, of course. So she says to him, you can't leave the house unless you fill out the order. Okay. It's not something that he would normally do, but he said his wife was very busy. She was a principal. It was the beginning of the school year. She didn't have a chance to do it. Okay, so he sits down with his son in the kitchen for the first time in his life that he's filling out this book, and they go over the form. And, of course, you know, he's trying to save some money, 
So he's haggling with his son, negotiating how they could take the books off. Finally, they end up with two books that he chose. He gives them for him. He's out to go to work. But of course, he's, he's late. And, you know, as it is, you know, rush hour time, right. and the, more, the later you are, oh, yeah. it gets compounded. So if you're 20 minutes late, it ends up being 40 minutes late, which is exactly what happened. It's 8.40. Instead of being there at 8 o'clock, he gets to the building at 8.40. He hops onto the elevator, but the elevator doesn't go straight up to the 101st floor. It takes you to the 70th floor or so. And then you take the elevator up to the 100th floor. He gets off on that floor, the 70th floor. He's about to approach the elevator when all of a sudden there's this major, major, like boom, major thing. And smoke and debris all over. And his first reaction is, this was a bomb. And just right then, the elevator doors open, and he sees there's a fire inside the elevator, and a few of his co-workers come out. Three co-workers, to be exact. He knew them. And they were all burnt to different degrees. So the first one had, had second-degree burns. The second one had third-degree burns. third person didn't survive. Uh, they died from their burns. And he's looking at his co-workers. Of course, the electricity is off in the building, and nobody knows what's going on. He knows what's going on, what's happening here. And the co-worker, the second lady who has the third-degree burn, she says, Ari, help me, save me. And he said he made the decision then and there that he's not going to abandon this woman, no matter what. He says, don't worry, we're going to take care of you. They find the emergency exit to the stairway. They go down 40 flights of stairs, and he describes, you know, how it was very difficult for this lady. At a certain point, she says, I can't do this anymore. You know, she's suffering third-degree burns. He says, no, no, you can do it, you can do it. At a certain point, um, it reached the point where the firefighters told people, you can't go down because we have to go up. So people were just waiting there. This is around the 30th floor. And he came with this idea. He says, you know what? He told them, you know, I have a lady here with third-degree burns. We have to get down to get her medical attention. So they let them pass. And that's how he ended up. Uh, outside the uh, the twin towers, by the time he already was out of the building, the second the second building was already attacked. Um, and he found an ambulance. He put her in the ambulance, and he he had a plan to go back, you know, to see if he could help other people. And the coworker says, "No, no, Ari, please come with me to the hospital." And she was very adamant about it. Okay, so he went with her to the hospital. Of course, the rest is history. The rest is history. And it's, like we said, not a single person survived from uh, from those that were in the company. There were 600-plus people. Many people weren't there yet. You had the, the people coming down the steps. Most of them didn't survive. Uh, yeah, that's possible, too. Looking back now, all these years later, he says, you know, so what happened here? Of course, this was the Rebbeinah Shalom, you know, saving his life. He says, first of all, the fact that his wife insisted that he fill out the book order, which made him late. Otherwise, he would have been already on the, on the yeah. first floor. And then meeting this co-worker also, which, which helped him, you know, besides the fact that well, he was able to push through the 30th floor. She also insisted that he get into the ambulance with her. He said if not, he would have gone back and he would have been dead for sure. And so looking back all these years later, he, he says, no, so what did this tell me? What did this tell me? And he says, you know, his life at the time was all about work. It was all about work. He says that's how it was in the financial world. The environment that he was in, very high-pressure environment, like we said. And it was all about work. So he says if his daughter is asking, can you come to the play, like I'm an actor in the play, Tati has to be at work. Uh, you know, uh, can you go with us on a trip? He has to be at work. Work, work, work. That was his life. And after that episode happened, you know, and, and of course, it, it took a lot of time to get over the trauma, he realized that the Eberster saved him for a reason. And he gave him a new lease on life. He gave him a new lease on life. And he has to realize what the priorities are. He said, made the decision, you know what? 
I'm going to be the father who's going to be go to my children's uh, to their plays and to their trips. And any time they need me, I'm going to be there for them 100%. I'm going to be fully present. And he made that decision, and really, he changed his life around. And he says, you know, it's not like he made the decision, okay, I'm quitting work, <laughs> I'm going to sit and learn a base matter. He says, that's not something that a person can do, and it'll sustain. Instead, he made this conscious decision to appreciate the lease on life that the Rebbein Shalom gave him. The second lease on life. Rebbein Shalom put me here for a reason. And he, and he goes around now giving motivational talks and inspiring people, and he encourages unaffiliated idiots. He says, you know, even if you don't keep uh, too many things, but maybe try one thing that you can do. Small, a small mitzvah. You know, it can be a small thing, like maybe putting a mezuzah in your house, or maybe lighting Shabbos candles. He says, because, you know, if you light one candle, that candle can light another candle, and before you know it, you change the world. And he used that as his mission in life, and Baruch Hashem, you know, he's, he's around now 21 years later, inspiring and, and living a life of Kiddush Hashem, and that's the you, lesson that we can learn. You may not change the world, someone else can change it. Exactly, exactly. But you change one person, <coughs> yourself included, you know, and you never know what the ripple effects are going to be. And that's talk of the lesson that we see here from the parsha. That the British wants us to live life with an appreciation, a life of happiness and fulfillment. Talk, we should all be zeichet to that. I wish you all the good gemenshtiyot. Simatayva, Shabbos. Thank you very much. Yeah.